I am not a great follower. And I don't mean that like, you know, the best leaders uh, blaze their own trail kind of thing. I just mean that in the sense of uh, the biggest hindrance to me in following someone is, is not having a perfectly defined plan uh, or roadmap to follow. I like to know every step of the way what's going to happen and where we're going to go. Uh, for my wife, though, Kelsey, on the other hand, is, is much more of a free spirit than I am. If something sounds fun or somewhere uh, sounds fun, an event someplace, even if we've not planned for it, you know, who needs a plan when you can just figure it out as you go along? And so yesterday, we took uh, Chandler to Joplin. He has swim lessons every uh, Saturday, and I uh, took him down there and, and ate Chick-fil-A, uh, the mecca of our trip every weekend. And she decided at noon uh, that we should go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have some friends there, uh, and they've just built, not our friends, but the, the city has just built this massive multi-million dollar uh, park, and, and we knew Chandler would have a great time. And, and I wasn't opposed to going to Tulsa itself. It's just if I'm going to go somewhere like that, I want to make a weekend of it. I want to spend more time uh, in the destination than I do in the car. And so I said, you know, there's just there's absolutely no way I'm going to Tulsa at noon on a Saturday. So a couple of hours later, we got to Tulsa, and uh, uh, we had a great time, and, and really the park was awesome, and I'm, I'm, uh, I have to admit that I'm glad uh, that we went. But it's just, it's difficult to follow for me uh, when I don't have it planned out ahead of time. And I know I wasn't technically following Kelsey, I was the one driving, but it was her a plan that we were going after. Last week, we began a new series called DMs, uh, looking at the direct messages that Jesus imparts to us as his disciples or as his followers. We discussed in the beginning of last week how Jesus, throughout his ministry, often had three main groups surround him. There were the crowds that loved Jesus, the religious leaders uh, that hated Jesus, and of course the disciples that followed Jesus. And what I find most interesting is that Jesus dealt with each of these three groups in a different way. To the crowds, he often spoke in parables, these veiled stories, so that unless they were hearing with earnest and, and searching ears, they would not understand the truths that he was speaking. Uh, for the religious leaders, he often returned their questions with more questions. The questions that were designed to trap him, he often turned around on them. But for his disciples, to those whom he was the closest, uh, who had centered their lives around Jesus, he spoke directly. He, he spoke these messages straight to their hearts. And it's our goal throughout this series to look at those direct messages about the truth uh, that Jesus can speak into our lives as well. And so our, last week we looked at the direct message uh, that Jesus spoke as he called his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he spoke to them into their hearts this uh, message of trust me. You know, despite not knowing what the future holds or despite how much it might cost, I want you to trust me. And so this morning it's a similar call but different in a sense. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gives us the message, follow me. But like my wife, when you follow Jesus, you don't always necessarily get the full plan. You don't know all of the steps or exactly how things are going to work out along the way. And so really the call to follow is a call to bold faith, to trust Jesus in a sense of following every step of the way regardless of where he leads. Last week in Luke chapter 5, as Jesus called these first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these fishermen, he called them to a new vocation. He said, no longer are you going to be fishermen in the traditional sense. I'm calling you to follow after me, to come after me and fish for people. And so this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, we see uh, them fishing for one such person. But sometimes when you go fishing, you don't hook quite what you'd expect. And so what I really want to focus on today 
is really the fish over and above the fishermen. What I mean by that is that Jesus' call to follow me is probably uh, most, one that most of us have already answered to some extent. By virtue of being here this morning, many of us, most of us, have probably already given our lives over to Jesus. No, we could follow him uh, more closely or more obediently at time, different times in our lives. Most of us have already answered that call. And so I want to look at this morning and focus on those uh, whom Jesus often calls. Not necessarily to follow me into our own lives, but to follow me uh, placed upon others in which we can have a hand and a part. And so as Jesus calls people to follow him, what we find is often he calls those whom maybe we least expect. And this morning, the one he calls to follow begins with a man named Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Already we kind of have to, to stop because uh, nothing against you, but you really just didn't have the reaction uh, that you should at a verse like this. And if you read something like this, it's just supposed to, <gasps> you know, the air is sucked out of the room for a second. Because Matthew is a tax collector. You know, what business does he have with Jesus? Because Matthew is not just your, your typical IRS agent doing his job. To be a tax collector in Jesus' day would be, would be to be thought of as a thief. The way it worked was that you, uh, as a tax collector, would uh, lease your booth from Rome. Rome would require that you uh, took in a certain amount of money for taxes, and the rest was really yours to keep. And so an honest person in this would collect no more uh, than they needed. But that was often not the corruption that was common in tax collectors of that day. Um, maybe this is a better example of this. Most of the time when you cut your hair, a lot of times, the person you're cutting ha- your hair, uh, person cutting your hair is actually renting their chair. Uh, they, they rent their chair from the salon. They pay the salon over a certain amount to, to rent the chair, and all the money they collect after that is theirs to keep. And so in this kind of same sense, you have these men who would sit at these booths, tasked by Rome to collect taxes, often kind of skimming off the top and taking more uh, than they needed for themselves. And it was more than just a little. I mean, these men made their entire living by purposely pocketing more than was asked, more than was required, and everybody knew it. And so you would think that this, this, with this kind of extortion, the government might step in and put a stop to it. But frankly, Rome didn't really care all that much. They were getting what they required. And so, you know, who cares as long as they're getting their cut? I kind of think of it, again, uh, with this trip to Tulsa, kind of of those toll booth workers out there on the Will Rogers Turnpike. If you've ever been to, to Tulsa, you'll know what I'm talking about. Halfway there, uh, there's this roadblock <laughs> set up that unless you pay $4.75, you can't continue on. And I know these toll booth workers are just doing their job, but, but $4.75, one way, that's $9.50 to drive on a road. You know what I could do with $9.50? I don't either because they always take it from me. You know, it's just, and I, I know, you know, that, like I said, they're just doing their jobs, but it's a little harder to say sometimes, have a nice day, because they're the, the face of the toll. And I think it's similar to the way these tax collectors were often treated, that Matthew was the face of what so many Jewish people hated about their circumstances, hated about the oppression that was leveled on them by this Roman Empire. Matthew would have been hated because, I mean, first of all, he collected taxes, I mean, let's face it, when the W-2s start arriving in the mail and April 15th looms closer, we're not thinking too friendly of the IRS. But for Jews under Rome, it would have been even worse. By the time it was all said and done, it wouldn't have been uncommon for one to two-thirds of their entire income to go toward taxes. 
There were taxes on bridges and roads and harbors and on your income and on grain and wine and fruit and fish. I mean, the list could go on and on. There were taxes on everything. They would also have hated Matthew, not just because of taxes, but because of what these taxes were spent on. Not only with Roman charge uh, would they be charging excessive taxes, but they could dictate wherever these taxes went to, often in immoral and idolatrous ways. It would be not unlike our government saying, you know, from now on we're going to start charging you a tax in order to put a Quran in every school or, or the Book of Mormon in every child's desk. Or we're going to use your hard-earned income and tax off that to put a strip club in every community. And you have nothing to say about it. But I think even more than this, Matthew would have been hated because of what he represented. For the Jews, every time a tax was paid, every time they traveled a bridge or caught a fish or brought home a paycheck, it would have been a harsh reminder as taxes were drawn out of that, that they weren't free. That God's people were dominated by a pagan government. And so to be Jewish and a tax collector like Matthew was, was to to be the enemy of your own people. Rather than fighting against Rome and their oppression, you were aiding and abetting it. Matthew, as part of this system, wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue and the religious services of his day, which would have been to be ostracized from his community. And this is the situation that we meet Matthew. The irony of this is if you were to read Matthew's gospel just without this in mind, you would think that he is just the Jew's Jew. You know, more than any other gospel writer, Matthew quotes the Old Testament and looks at the Old Testament over and over again and he sees Jesus. Yet he wasn't even allowed in the church services of his day. But still he sat and he studied his Old Testament and he studied his scriptures and he studied Jesus in his solitude. But not just Matthew wasn't just any tax collector. Uh, we learn in other places that Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum, which in Capernaum was the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember last week, the disciples' favorite place to fish was the Sea of Galilee. I can't imagine how many times Peter, Andrew, James, and John, those four that Jesus called last week, tried to sneak by or walk by Matthew's booth, tried to get out of paying the tax, tried to, to get by without giving Rome their cut. I think of the miraculous catch that we looked at last week. They pulled in so many fish that the boats were threatening to sink. And as they did, Matthew took a cut of every single one. Imagine those conversations around the campfire as Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And these four fishermen have been constantly taxed by Matthew over the years. Jesus, though, doesn't walk by. He doesn't sneak by. He stops at the booth. Probably the first one to ever do so willingly. And he looks Matthew in the eye and he says, come with me. And this should be crazy to us. Jesus is is, is saying, he goes up to the traitor and the thief, the cheat, the swindler. And he says, you're just the kind of person that I'm looking for to to be my ambassador, to be my messenger. I can imagine the disciples think, uh, Jesus, can we have like a, a sidebar on this? I don't know if you know who this guy is or what he does, but I think we maybe need to clear this up a little bit. What we see in this, though, is that Jesus has a habit of choosing people that we wouldn't expect as his disciples. I mean, the Fantastic Four that we looked at last week were just fishermen. And even fishermen were better picks, pick than a tax collector. I mean, they might not have been high on the social scale, but at least they weren't thieves. But Jesus loves to do things differently. Jesus loves to call people and seek people when often they were the ones often seeking. 
with other rabbis of his day, it would have been common for disciples to study and to pour over the scriptures and to learn as much as they can before going to find the best rabbi they could to get on the job training. And instead, Jesus goes after fishermen and tax collectors. And as with each of us, when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, Matthew has a decision to make. Jesus walks up and he looks him in the eye and he calls Matthew, and Matthew has to choose whether or not he'll follow. And at first blush, it seems like an obvious choice. I'm sure Matthew didn't want to be hated. He didn't want to be ostracized from his community. But think about what he'd be giving up. I mean, tax collectors make a lot of money. And if he leaves, somebody's going to be there right behind him, ready to take up his stand. There is no backup plan. When Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their fishing entourage, their, their expedition, their nets last week, we see that they left their enterprise in the hands of capable uh, owners. I mean, when Jesus dies, the next thing we know, the disciples are right back in the boats. But when Matthew walks away, it would have been for good. If Matthew walks away, he's pushing all of his chips into the middle of going all in for Jesus. And that's exactly what we see Matthew do. He gets up from his booth, he flips the sign to close, and he walks away pen in hand. The first thing he does is, is host a big dinner. We could kind of call it a dinner for sinners. Verse 10 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew throws this party, this celebration for being called by Jesus, and, and as he would expect, he invites, it makes sense to invite his friends. The problem is that as a sinner and as a tax collector, all your friends are also sinners and tax collectors. And so it's not before too long that Jesus is surrounded by all of these people whom the other religious leaders wouldn't have been caught dead with. But this party wasn't just simply sharing a meal together. In Jesus' context, this, this shared meal would have been making a statement. It's the kind of statement that you might make if you're on Facebook and you're feeling vengeful or mad at somebody and you, you unfriend them. Or if you really want to go hardcore, you, you block them so they can't see any of your stuff. It's more than just an action. It's making a statement. You see, in this culture of honor and shame, with this currency in mind, sharing a table with someone is more than just eating. It was a political and social and sometimes even religious tool used to make a statement. Sharing a table with one another indicated to the rest of society who you considered family. You know, who was in and who was out. And so here Jesus chooses to eat with tax collectors and sinners, the, world, the, the others the world hates as his disciples. He eats with them in, his, in their unclean homes, and if that's not bad enough, he's basically, by doing this, calling them family. Jesus doesn't eat with the who's who's and the, and the up-and-comers. He shares his meals with the rejects and the outcasts. And Jesus does this to simply communicate his message, that Jesus calls the sick, not the saints. That's exactly what he says in verse 11 when the Pharisees noticed this little banquet. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, are upset with Jesus because he's not doing things the right way, which is to say, their way. He's messing around with the riffraff, the sinners, and they're thinking, how can you, as a religious teacher, possibly associate with such people? 
And we kind of give the Pharisees a lot of flack because we know their role in the Gospels. But when it comes to real life, we're often more like them than we'd like to admit. It's easy to elevate the rules and the ritual over the right treatment of people who need God the most. And I think this is where the story of Matthew's calling connects with our story as well. Because when it comes to sharing our faith or bringing people to church or, or talking about going and winning the world or one being greater than 99 and loving the lost, we talk about these things. But we kind of expect them to wipe their feet before they come in. We want them to, to speak right or dress right or have all of the right answers. And when it comes to church, and I'm not just talking about countryside, I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the global capital C church. I think we expect new people and finding Jesus to first come and behave. You know, if they can conduct themselves in the right way, then maybe we'll teach them what to believe. And if they behave and they believe, then maybe we'll let them belong. If they check all the right boxes, then they can become a part of us. But we see Jesus do the opposite. That Jesus met people where they were at. And while he was never content to leave them there, it didn't matter where they were, you immediately belonged to Jesus. Jesus called people to him before they knew what it meant to be a fully-fledged follower. And asking people to come to Jesus without knowing of who he is and his person and his ministry is kind of like asking people to get well before they go to the doctor. Maybe we've been approaching this whole church thing all wrong. Maybe we've been doing it backwards. Maybe what we need to communicate to people coming or people that we go and find is that you belong to us. We love you and, and we care for you and we respect you and we want a relationship with you. It's worth our time and our energy. And as they do this, they begin to open, become open to the truth. When they know they have a place to belong in a community that cares about them, they begin to let down their guard and hear a message that can speak into their hearts. And they begin to listen. And they allow time for, for truth, to, to experience this truth for themselves. And after a while, that truth begins to sink in. And they learn who Jesus is. And they learn what it looks like to make Him Lord of their lives. And they become followers of Him, simply by knowing they belong somewhere. When I think of this uh, process, uh, I think of the story of Norma McCorvey. Uh, Norma McCorvey, when she first met a man by the name of Flip Benham, uh, they could not have been more polarized as people. Norma was working uh, at an abortion clinic when Flip Benham opened the office of an anti-abortion group next door. These two facilities shared a parking lot. And so since this is a little bit like putting fire and gas in close proximity, nobody expected this arrangement to last very long. And certainly by the end of it all, nobody expected them to call each other friends. And maybe, things, maybe what made things more awkward is that uh, Flip was a minister, and, and McCorvey very much wasn't. And these two began to have uh, conversations, if you could call them that, with protests erupting in their shared parking lot, and they would volley insults back and forth during these protests and use TV interview spots to, to insult each other. And while Flip Benham might not have been the perfect representative of Christ, that began to change one day. Uh, he approached Norma and and. She was smoking outside of her clinic, and he just came up to her, and he sat down beside her, and he apologized. 
He apologized for calling your names, and he said, I've, I've seen my words drop into your heart, and I know they've hurt you deeply. And because of this humbling, this apology, soon uh, McCorvey would visit the anti-abortion group on her break times and ask them to pray for her. And while protesters continued to barrage each other in the parking lot, Benham would sit down with McCorvey after hours and explain passages of the Bible to her. This continued for some time until ultimately Norma agreed to attend church, and she reflected on it later, saying, I can't really recall much of what the preacher shared, but each word began to open the window in my heart just a little further. After the service, she accompanied several in the congregation to a house outside Dallas where she was baptized in the outdoor pool. And from that point on, Norma's life was never the same. She gave her life to Christ and became a staunch advocate for the rights of the unborn. And this, in and of itself, would be an incredible story. I mean, a pro-life advocate minister witnessing to an abortionist while protests carried on in their parking lot to the point where she would give up her tightly held beliefs following Christ and go into the opposite side of the spectrum. I mean, that in itself is a phenomenal story. But I think what makes this story even more remarkable is the name that most of us would actually recognize Norma McCorvey by. She was born Norma McCorvey, but in 1973, uh, she was a high school dropout who was denied an abortion. And so she took her case to the Supreme Court and became the face of a decision that would lead to the death of 60 million unborn children over the next five decades. Because the name that most of us would recognize Norma McCorvey by is the name Jane Roe. And what's remarkable to me about this story is what happened to the woman whose face would become the decision that would set the abortion movement in motion over the next 50 years, becoming completely on the opposite end of the spectrum, becoming an advocate for the, li- the rights of the unborn simply because somebody said, I'm sorry and you belong. And I know this is the kind of preacher story that you'd expect to share. I mean, you'd expect me to, to give a powerful success story. But maybe the question is, you know, what, what if this hadn't happened? What if Norma never changed? You know, what if this vulnerability that Benham opened himself up to by apologizing just gave her more ammo and firepower to overcome him and his group? I mean, it could have made the church look bad. It could have compromised the reputation of this anti-abortion group. And, I mean, you're right. There, there's no guarantee that in coming to someone and saying you belong and you have a family and and we want you to be a part of this will lead them to life change, will lead them to following Christ. But I guess the question we have to ask with this is, is it worth the risk? And the call of Matthew shows us that letting people belong before they believe or even before they behave is worth the risk. For most people walking by Matthew as a tax collector, he probably looked pretty antagonistic toward the gospel. I mean, he was on the other side of the religious fence. He was considered a traitor by his own people. But Jesus walked up and he looked him in the eye and he dignified him and he told him to follow. And the first thing that Matthew does is he goes and tells all of his friends what Jesus did for him. And when he's done with that, he sits down and he writes a gospel. I grew up in church, and I've never written a gospel. This is the question I think we have to ask ourselves when it comes to being the hands and feet of Jesus and calling people to follow after him. 
Is, is it worth the risk? Some of you have to ask this for the sake of your own lives because you haven't yet answered uh, the question of whether or not you'll follow. And maybe you're kind of still sitting in the metaphorical tax booth contemplating what it might take, the risks that you might face, the things you might lose if you follow. And that's you this morning. I want you to tell you, yeah, it's going to cost you some things if you follow Jesus. It might ultimately, whether physically or spiritually, cost you your own life. But Jesus gives us the promise that because of his death, because of his resurrection, he has taken that upon himself so that we can experience the new life that he has available to us in the resurrection. So if you're kind of sitting in that booth this morning, hearing the call of Jesus to follow him, and you're not quite sure what step to take, during this time of invitation, our, our response team is going to come forward. I'll be up front. Our elders are going to be in the back. We'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe more pertinent for us, though, is some of us have to ask this question, is it worth the risk when it comes to sharing Jesus with others? It's so easy in our little religious systems to demand people behave and believe and belong and, and like I said, check all the right boxes before they become a part of us. When you look at the way that Jesus did ministry, we see that he made time for people and he loved people and he respected people and he dignified people. He didn't, he didn't expect them to be in a place other than where they were as he called them to follow after him. He allowed them to belong and then believe, and then, under his lordship, learn what it likes to live a life following him. And it's easy to, to kind of scare ourselves out of this process and think, well, you know, what if it doesn't work? What if they never come to believe? What if, what if there's too much risk? I think it's worth the risk to go and call the sick and not the saints. I think it's worth the risk to meet people where they are and love them despite their circumstances. I think it's worth the risk to get our hands messy for a chance that somebody could learn of the love of Jesus. And asking the question, is it worth the risk? I think we find our answer when we turn to that first page of the New Testament. And we look at the top of that page and we see the gospel according to Matthew. And I think if you listen closely, you could probably hear him say, I'm glad Jesus took the risk on me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that wherever we are in this line of following you, whether it comes to following you for the first time in our own lives or calling others to follow after you as your ambassadors, as your representatives, that you would give us courage that you would strengthen us by the power of your Spirit to assume risks. God, I pray that you would open our eyes up to people that we cross paths with, people we work with, people in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities that need to know you. And we might look at them and, <laughs> and see that their lives are messy, that they don't say the right things or wear the right things or you know, spend their Saturday evenings the right way. But God, we see in Jesus the process that he used in calling people to follow him. People that were messy, people that were broken, people that were far from him, people that were lost. And he said, follow me because you belong. And God, I, I know that just calling them to belong is not in and of itself 
uh, enough to, to see them become, uh, to experience your salvation. But it opens a door. And God, I pray that we would be throwing doors open all over the place, that as they know they have a place to belong and a family that they can be a part of, that they would begin to let their guard down and become real and transparent and authentic and allow your truth to work into their hearts and into their lives. That they begin to understand why you've called them to live a certain way and begin to follow after you in a way that we might call it behavior, but ultimately is living a life that glorifies you. So God, I pray that you'd simply open our eyes and give strength to our hands and to our feet and to our mouths to proclaim your love and your truth to those whom we accept with open arms and call to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.